Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday. Let's get right to uh, our top story, what we wanted to talk about. Mentioned this with Mike Smith in our crossover just a few moments ago, talking about a move at the city of Vancouver. And earlier today, as you know, the mayor, Kennedy Stewart, held an availability talking about the ongoing COVID-19 response. Uh, But it was the questioning from Jordan Armstrong, who's a reporter at Global News, as you likely know. Uh, He tried to question the mayor about a decision to cut sanitation funding and to put money aside to hire a social media staffer. Even though there is a hiring freeze, that money has still been earmarked. And the mayor didn't appreciate that Jordan kept asking that question. Take a listen to a little bit of the exchange. The overall department is, is it not somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 people? The, uh, the, uh, you know, council approved the budget uh, last year. Uh, We've all gone through this and uh, the the numbers are fluctuating. As you know, we have... uh, we have laid off 1,800 people here at the city uh, because of uh, the unions. Uh, you know, we're all working together in this uh, in this crisis. The unions have, I would say, made unprecedented uh, uh, adjustments and work with us so that we don't have to lay off further people. However, uh, depending on how the economy goes, more layoffs may have to come. So right now, uh, all that is all that is in flux. But given I think that 1,800 we'll city workers right. have been laid well, off, Mr. Mayor, just a question about optics. Are you not worried about? Well, are you not worried about the optics of hiring a social media person when you're laying off staff? Good for our next question, please. You're not going to answer that question. I've answered your three questions. No, you're, are you worried about the optics? Property taxes hey, are going up seven percent. Yet you're hiring a social media person. Are you no, worried hi. about that? There's many people with questions. You've had more than your share. You're not and we're going to move on okay. to the next one. But thank you for your persistence. Okay. Next question, please. All right, let's bring in Lisa Dominato, a City of Vancouver councillor with the NPA. Councillor, thank you so much for taking some time to talk about this today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, what's your response even hearing that exchange and the conversation that's happening about uh, the cuts to one department and the money being earmarked for a social media staffer? Well, I'm incredibly surprised by the mayor's response because um, while we all recognize we're in a pandemic and we're facing shortfalls, uh, we know that um, street cleaning is a core service. And uh, that's not something you can delegate to anyone else or anywhere else uh, to other levels of government. It's a core municipal responsibility. And, I, I you know, my colleague, Councillor Kirby Young, said it really sends the wrong message. It absolutely sends the wrong message that we're still earmarking uh, funds for uh, social media strategists when we actually are seeing increasing need for litter pickup, street cleanup, as you're hearing from residents and uh, BIAs around the city. So so council could have decided then to not put this money aside or, or given that hiring freeze, uh, could have decided this isn't the right time for this and kept the sanitation budget the way it was? In my view, yes, we moved a motion to say retain the three. The, it was an incremental increase of $300,000 for street cleaning. We moved a motion to retain that. It wasn't supported by council. And so absolutely, it was within the purview of council to give that direction. And that wasn't supported. And, and I find that surprising. Uh, the mayor uh, called the line of questioning at that news conference today a false narrative. He said it's a red herring story because it's only $95,000 in a budget that's more than a billion dollars. What do you think of the optics? I think the optics are terrible. I mean, we know from hearing from residents, BIAs, um, people are concerned about this street cleanup and waste. We're seeing an increase in it. We've received thousands of calls annually about this. 
And increasingly, you hear from families and others about needles uh, that they're seeing. And so this is a real concern. And, and after 2010, after the 2010 Olympics, the actual budget allocation for street cleaning was reduced by $2 million. So now we're actually having to catch up. Um, and I think the public should be concerned. We're pay, the public's paying taxes. Residents are paying taxes. And we can't delegate to, to anyone else. This is a city responsibility. Uh, and speaking of taxes, I mean, property owners in Vancouver are still looking at a 7% property tax increase. And, and I would imagine many of those property tax uh, payers are not going to be happy knowing that you're going to be paying a lot more and you're not going to be getting as much of those core services. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't support the 7% property tax increase. I voted against that. It was way too high. And uh, people expect to see these services. These are core services every municipality is responsible for. And we have information from our staff saying that there's increasing need for street support, street cleanup, litter pickup, uh, that we're seeing more demands and more pressures in that area. So while we need to look at our budget, uh, this is certainly not the area I would have looked to first. Uh, there have been a lot of questions as well about the number of communications staff members in the communications department. Do you know how many there are? Yeah, we, we know that there's well over 20, and I don't have that exact number on me, but I can tell you this, that that budget, specifically for civic engagement and communications, has increased from $1.7 million in 2016 to $2.8 million in 2020. Uh, that's a pretty significant increase over five years. And again, while I didn't support the budget, um, there was a lift in this 2020 budget. And that's what I was saying several weeks ago in council. I said, I moved a motion saying we should revisit all of the added expenditures in the 2020 budget um, because we're only four years into the fiscal year. If we've earmarked funding for things, we should revisit that. That's where it should be looking first uh, and not relying simply uh, or on our reserves. So the civic engagement and that's uh, and the the communications department that part of the budget. So you're saying it's gone up more than a million dollars? Yes. And at the same time, this council is cutting core services like sanitation and street cleaning. Uh, well, that's what was recommended uh, in the budget mitigation package we received this re- week with respect to the pandemic was. Uh, that we uh, it was recommended that we reduce that street cleaning, and I don't support that. Uh, I think uh, our motion to retain that was the right motion, the right move. Uh, what can be done at this point? Uh, the mayor seemed uh, adamant today that uh, there's the free, the hiring freeze, and that the, because of that, uh, this position isn't going to be filled. Uh, again, he called it, referred to it uh, as a false narrative. Uh, wasn't willing to go there. What can be done at this point? Do you think, as far as as spending by this council, or perhaps getting this council to look at its spending priorities? Well, we absolutely have to do that, and and I've been saying this for a long time, is that we need to look at where we can sort of sharpen the pencil and look at maybe we have business we need to do differently. Uh, We can move things online, uh, but certainly uh, we need to get our house in order and look at reducing our costs. Uh, I reflected this in an op-ed a few months ago, is the fact that uh, our expenses were far uh, um, outreaching our revenues, and I think that we need to revisit that. And, and we actually had this uh, identified in our financial reports or our financial forecasting for the last six or seven years that we were in trouble. And so um, that means we need to step back and take a look at what do we need to keep on doing? What do we need, need to move on and do differently? Uh, and uh, there is an opportunity to do that. And we've moved a number of motions with that respect to that. Uh, but I think um, this is fundamentally a core service that we can't give up.
Has, has anyone with the NPA thought of, or perhaps even done this, gone through the budget line by line and shown exactly where there could be cuts made or perhaps suggested where there could be cost savings? This is absolutely something we have done. And actually, um, I, I speak to, I think, the leadership of our caucus is that we have been repeatedly saying we need to go through uh, with a fine tooth comb and look at uh you know, what needs to stay, what needs to be moved on. And uh, I think that speaks to um, doing business differently, uh, doing our budget process differently. And um, I think that's the leadership the city is looking for. All right. Well, we will watch it and see what happens. But you're right. I posted a photo this morning on Twitter of a bunch of garbage that was left in Kitts Point. And the response from people was, yeah, we're seeing this all over the city. We're seeing more garbage, more litter, and we don't want core services cut. Uh, Councillor, I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again. But thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate the time. Well, as you likely heard in Janet Brown's report on this, questions are being asked about the future of the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain project, that because of the financial impacts of COVID-19. TransLink saying the pandemic has forced the transportation agency to consider a new path to approval for the project. So what exactly does that mean? Jonathan Cote, who is the chair of the Mayor's Council, joins me on the line now. Mayor Cote, thanks so much for being with us. No, well, thanks for thanks for having me on the show. So, where do we where does the project stand right now? Yeah, well, no doubt uh, TransLink has been hit extremely hard by the COVID nineteen crisis and uh, are working through our, our financial challenges both in the short term and and, and in the long term. Uh, you know, I think we recognize uh, the expansion of SkyTrain uh, in Surrey is, is still an important transportation investment. In the region, uh, we had originally, before COVID-19 hit, uh, planned to come to an investment plan approval in the July period. But unfortunately, given the uncertainties, financial uncertainties, that's not going to be possible. At the earliest time, uh, we'd now be looking at the fall to be looking at that type of approval. But a lot of work needs to be done before then. And what kind of work needs to be done? Well, you know, I think the, the big one is having a greater, better understanding of, of the uh, the impacts of COVID nineteen uh, on uh, on TransLink and and the future future of transportation. Uh, as the months go by, we learn we're learning more and more about about the impacts. And even now with the restart plan, we are starting to see transit riders start uh, slowly to come back to, to the transit system, which is a good sign. Uh, but we're going to need a lot more certainty and a lot more information. And I think that the coming months will will put us in a much better position. Uh, so the vice president of planning and policy at TransLink, uh, Jeff Cross told the Mayor's Council today uh, that there are those issues that need to be addressed for the project to advance. Uh, you're saying that that by fall, it would be the earliest uh, we're looking at that approval. Uh, what what else needs to happen, though? Because it seems a bit like there's a bit of a mixed message there and that there are these issues, which are understandable due to, to COVID-19. But then Jeff Cross is also saying that the business case is still sound. Yeah, so you know, I, I think the the original business case for the project uh, has has demonstrated to be to be very positive, and we don't think the the fundamentals of that business case have have changed uh, substantially because of because of COVID nineteen. I think what we're really struggling with is the immediate financial crisis and uncertainty about how long that financial hit is, is going to, to impact COVID-19. There are a number of different scenarios on how the pandemic may play out, where there's kind of more optimistic shorter-term impacts that might start to recover later this year. But there's other uh, projections that say this might come back in waves, and this might be a multi-year, much larger impact. And I think we just need to have a better understanding of that before we uh, are able to, to kind of 
present an investment plan that has to be fully funded and uh, and really understand the, the financial certainties of the organization. So if I'm correct, though, is this the this is the same project that the mayor of Surrey was saying that post pandemic, this would be the first one he thought to be approved and get shovels in the ground because it's ready to go. And if that's what he was saying a few weeks ago, but it sounds like that might be a little optimistic. Yeah, well, you know, I think the the project still has some some really good good fundamentals, and uh, you know, I think as we start to put our mind to the recovery phase, uh, no doubt we're going to be keeping our eye in terms of stimulus funding and and future opportunities from uh, the federal uh, federal government, and those might be opportunities to get some of these projects that are are a little bit uncertainty to have a have a clear clear path. Um, but you know, I think we 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 have to be upfront. There there's still uh, significant financial challenges that TransLink uh, is going to need to work through, and uh, and we need to have better certainty before we can kind of press the go button on uh, you know on a billion dollar transit project. Uh, do you think there's a possibility the project will change or be scaled back? You, you know, I think uh, the project uh, has already been developed in, in phases, with the first phase going to Fleetwood and the second phase planned for for Langley. And I I think the if you if you cut a project into two smaller phases. The business case actually doesn't doesn't make as, as much sense. So I don't uh, don't expect us looking at uh, at really changing the, the the scope of the project. It's more about finding the the right time to be able to move ahead. And do you think then you're being optimistic, saying that it could happen in the fall, or is there a possibility that it will be delayed even further? You know, I think there's definitely a possibility, and we can see a scenario where uh, where this project and, and investment plan is able to come to the mayor's council in the fall. But I think we also have to be upfront that if uh, if challenges uh, continue or, or worsen or we look like we're moving into a, a second wave of the pandemic, uh, you know, we have to be open and realize there might be might be a further delay beyond that. Right, because it wasn't that long ago we were talking to TransLink about job action by drivers. And even when that was being talked about, TransLink was saying that it would have a huge impact on the 10-year plan. So if that was going to have a huge impact on the plan, you've got to think a pandemic is going to have an even bigger impact. Yeah, uh, you know, I think we're we're, we're already looking at, uh, you know, potentially half a billion dollars in, in lost revenue at, at TransLink. And uh, no matter how you want to look at it, that is that is a huge impact. So, you know, I think with, with big projects like this, uh, you know, we don't want to uh, act prematurely or, or brashly with that. But we also have to act responsibility, uh, responsibly and, and recognize we need to work our way through and best understand uh, the financial framework that we're under. Uh, we're certainly hopeful that uh, provincial and federal governments are, are going to, to recognize the challenge that transit agencies across the country are, are facing. And I think with their partnership, we'll be able to get back to, to doing the good work. But we have to be have to be cautious as we work through that process. Uh, do you anticipate any other major projects will be delayed or changed? Well, you know, the mayors, uh, you know, have uh, have a 10 year 10 year plan that has a whole suite of, of transit investments. And, uh, uh, you know, I think the, the reality is, as we move forward and have a better understanding of, uh, of the financial implication of TransLink, we're going to have to start to look at uh, at, at the 10 year plan. Uh, I think all of the projects that have, are contemplated there and the improvements are are still valid. But from a timing perspective and a priority perspective, I, I think those are going to be conversations we're, we're going to have to have. And mayors will have to be ready then to uh, either accept the delays or those changes. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's that's definitely going to have to be a, a, a conversation the mayor's council is going to have to work through because you know I think the, there was a lot of consensus around around the table about the the long term term investments there, but uh, you know COVID nineteen has has thrown a bit of a wrench into the plans, and uh, you know I think 
ultimately, the, the plan is still going to see the light of day, but is it going to happen the same previously anticipated timeline? Probably not, and we're going to have to be flexible and be able to work our way through that. Is the 10-year plan going to become a 20-year plan? Well, it's, it's too early to say, uh, you know, what, what the timeline would, would be. But, uh, uh, you know, I think we do have to have some expectations that uh, some of the projects we were quite excited about in implementing uh, could face delays. All right. We will leave it there. Mayor Cote, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. Well, a new poll shows some results when it comes to Canadians and their opinion of the gun ban that was announced on May 1st. That is the day the federal government announced a ban of the use, sale, import or transport of 1,500 models and variants of assault-style firearms. And must note that that is the language used by government. It is not actually a legal classification in Canada. The poll done by Ipsos suggests that 82% of those surveyed, either strongly, 54%, or somewhat, 27%, agree with banning so-called assault-style weapons. This is just a bit of what Daryl Brooker with Ipsos said earlier today on CKNW. We did ask people whether or not they thought that this was overreach, and about a third of them told us they were, even if they did support the military, the ban on military-style assault weapons. So it's not that there's a love for that particular uh, um, that particular style of firearm, uh, even among people who are supportive of firearms. They're, they don't need see a need for military-style assault weapons. Uh, what they do believe, though, is that there could potentially be an intrusion in other areas. Let's bring in Daniel Fritter, the publisher of Caliber, Canadian Firearms Magazine. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you for having me. What's your response seeing these numbers and what Ipsos was asking people? Uh, I mean, it's it's frustrating with the polls because, I mean, in this case, frequently, um, I hadn't heard that quote from from Daryl there with Ipsos. Uh, my interpretation of it, because I was quite confused when it said 82% uh, want the guns banned, but 33% think this is an overreach. Um, I immediately thought it was probably something to do with the way the questions were worded and the ordering of the questions, um, because obviously... In past experiences with polls, for example, there was one done with Angus Reid uh, closer to May 1st when the gun ban happened uh, that said 80%, 78% of people support the gun ban. Um, but they, they worded the question such as, you know, would you support a ban on assault weapons, assault weapons being defined as guns that hold a lot of bullets and shoot very quickly, um, ignoring the fact that in Canada we have magazine capacity limits. It doesn't matter what the capacity of the gun is. The magazine only holds five in Canada, the way it goes. Um and more to the point with the Angus Reid polls, 90% of the people polled also admitted to having no knowledge of Canada's firearms laws. So um, it's frustrating because you always feel as as someone that's, you know, something of a subject matter expert with a highly technical subject such as this, that you don't quite get the full story from these, these polls because they, they don't release the data, the modality of the questions and that sort of thing. So it, it is frustrating. Um, and again, you always have to wonder, like you said, it's not a legal definition of a firearm. Um because a gun looks just like the rifle carried by Canadian soldiers, it doesn't function in any way like the rifle the Canadian soldiers carry. And speci- specifically speaking of the AR-15, it's never been used by a military. Uh, you know, they call it a military-style firearm, much like non-alcoholic beer is a beer-style beverage. Uh, no military uses an AR-15 because it's a semi-automatic rifle designed for hunting coyotes. They buy fully automatic versions of it called the M16 and the M4. And if I'm correct, the AR-15 has also never been used in a mass shooting in Canada. It's never been used in a shooting in Canada. The sole injury an AR-15 has uh, inflicted upon someone during the commission of a crime in Canada 
was when a guy in the 80s uh, got high, uh, took a hostage, and then accidentally shot his finger off with it. And then that brought the entire thing to an end when the police rushed it. That's the only injury an AR-15 has ever actually inflicted on someone in this country. Do you think it's the wording to the asking people, do you uh, agree with a ban on military-style assault rifles? It is, and that's extremely problematic when you're saying, do you agree with a ban when it comes from a position of authority such as Ipsos Reid, because the people participating in these are people like, you know, myself, normal, normal, voluntary, inv- you know, people invited or called, uh, and they've heard Ipsos Reid's name in the news numerous times, so there's a certain amount of authority in there. So when they're asked, do you agree with it? Well, you're forcing someone to basically get into an argumentative position when they say no. If they had said, what kind of firearms do you think should be banned, that would be a little bit of a more open-ended question. Uh, More importantly, if they had simply gone into some of the technical details, and obviously they can't because these polls are very quickly conducted, and this is why polling on firearms stuff is so problematic. If they had simply said, would you support a ban on semi-automatic rifles? Because that's all these are. doesn't matter what it looks like. It's a semi-automatic rifle, just like a semi-automatic hunting rifle. Um, What would the answer be, you know? Uh, what does what bearing does the style of the gun have on really anything? They're just it's just a function of something. If if you take a Pontiac Fiero, Fiero and you make it into a Ferrari kit car, you have not made a Ferrari. It will not perform like a Ferrari. It will simply look like one, um, but it will still perform just like the Pontiac Fiero that it is underneath. Uh, and the poles kind of obfuscate a lot of that. And then moreover, from from my perspective, just as someone that. You know, I'm a publisher. I, I don't sell guns or anything like that. I just kind of watch the market and, and think about them a lot. Um, one of the issues is the, the, this issue of mob rule and, and the role of government within all of this. It was very frustrating, especially with the Angus Reid poll and now this one. Um, we don't make laws based on what the majority of people think. The majority of people would probably like to pay less taxes. The majority of people would probably like to pay no taxes. But the reality is government is is charged with taking a position of authority and responsibility and making responsible decisions and going, you know, you shouldn't drink until you're 19. You know, you should pay your taxes. You should not speed. We make these decisions based on the advice of experts in the fields that say, well, this is what people want and this is what the best outcome results from. So we should probably go with what the best outcome results from. And in the case of this gun ban, we've seen so many police officers, both frontline and you know, even Adam Palmer in Vancouver from the chief of Vancouver police, when there was a discussion of a handgun ban, he went on record with his association of the chiefs of police saying it won't work. It won't do anything. The handguns they're recovering are illegal because they are owned and possessed by people that are not licensed to possess them. Prohibiting them further won't make a change. You know, what they need to do is spend money on policing and, and mental health supports and interventionist programs for at-risk youth. Um, those are what the experts are saying. The government is saying, well, we're going to ban these guns. And then to justify it, they look to these polls and say, well, we have consensus among Canadians. But, you know, that's not what government's role is, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, no, and, and, uh, and I agree with you. And, and in fact, uh, going on what Adam Palmer said, I mean, it will do something. It will take guns away from law-abiding legal citizens that uh, aren't using them in the commissioning of crimes. Uh, you mentioned gun laws and uh, and the education perhaps around gun laws. Uh, do you think we would we would have different, uh, different results or at least uh, more accurate results if people did understand exactly what the gun laws are in this country? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, on a broader perspective, that's where these polls really go off the rails when they say things like, should we prohibit assault style firearms? Well, that ignores the notion that within Canada, the criminal code simply says possession of a firearm is illegal, period. If you have a gun license, you're simply exempted from being charged for five years. 
gun possession in Canada is illegal, period. It doesn't matter. If you don't have a license, you will get charged for it. Um, to the point where actually the Supreme Court of Canada struck down a mandatory minimum sentencing on firearms laws because lawyers raised the issue that um, when someone passes away and, and a widower or a widower inherits those firearms in an estate, if they don't take the appropriate precautions and steps immediately, they're exposed to the exact same potential mandatory minimum charges that a gangbanger with a Glock in the glove box would get. So they actually had to strike down those sentences as unconstitutional uh, because it was just saying, you know, this law is so bad, we've already prohibited guns, but we can't really, it's this weird, awkward catch-22 where their hands are tied on the punitive side. Um, and these polls kind of ignore all that. They don't, they don't say that, you know, you can't go buy an AR-15. If you want to, or if you wanted to, you had to take a two-day course. You had to wait 28 days. You had to provide three character references, including your conjugal partner. You had to provide a mental health attestation. And then every day you'll go through a daily criminal record check if you want to buy an AR-15. If they said that before, should we ban them? I think most people would go, well, why? It sounds like we've got a pretty effective control mechanism. Um, And then they might start asking questions more to Adam Palmer's point of this will do something. It will consume police resources and assets, and it will put police officers at risk as they have to go knock on a door of someone that has guns and may not want to give them up. And I mean, that sounds great in Vancouver, but when you're in a remote area where you're one of potentially four officers in a town of a few thousand, do you really want the animosity or do you want the community support? And, And it forces police officers to make that call of, well, I want to work with these people for the next five years of my policing contract in the region. So I don't really want to go and take their personal property from them that they paid good money for. You know, uh, that's what this, this that's what this will end up doing. No gangbanger cares about the gun ban, but, you know, police officers certainly do. And for those of us that own these guns, it kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly, yes. Yeah. Uh, one other question. One of the other questions in the poll was to do with firearms, guns that are smuggled into Canada from the United States. States, And it got, I think, almost nine in 10 Canadians said, yeah, we should be doing more to crack down on that. That one, I, I think, seems a little bit more cut and dry. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, my background when I went through university and whatnot, surprisingly, is actually African women's literature and forensic psychology. But you know, in, in that forensic psychology, we talk a lot about recidivism, the prevention of crime and policies and legislation, how it all works. Um, so I like to think a lot about the, the interventionist stuff that social programs we could do. But border controls, I mean, it's, it's almost become a glib. I feel like it's a glib comment when I say it now, when people are like, oh, we'll ban these guns and solve all the problems. And you go like, are you aware that we're bolted to the most heavily armed nation on the planet? And we share the most poorest border in the world with them, you know? It's the longest undefended border in the world, a point of pride for most Canadians at various points in history, perhaps less so these days. Um, But that's what it is. I mean, if you drive down Zero Avenue in Abbotsford, you know that the only thing separating Canada and the USA is a ditch. You know, Mm -hmm. it's there's there's been articles written. I mean, there's a hotel there called the Smugglers Inn that guarantees you your night stay is free if you don't see someone on night vision goggles smuggling across their front yard. (laughs) That's how porous the border is, that it's being used as a promotional mechanism for getting people into a hotel. You know, we can ban guns in Canada all we want. But the reality is what happens in Canada is far more dictated by U.S. policy. And the interesting part is within the gun industry, for example, there's a group called NWEST. It's the RCMP's uh, National Weapon Enforcement Team that gun industry has to interface quite frequently with when it comes to straw purchasing and reporting purchases that we don't think are legitimate and whatnot. NWEST refers to guns from in a very similar way that you'll hear police talk about drugs. It's, it's a commodity. Um, and there's been reports by the Department of Justice stipulating that, you know, if they crack down on guns too severely in Canada, it shortens the distance between legal guns becoming black market guns because 
well, you now own a thing that is worth thousands more dollars to a criminal than you paid for it. And if you can't use it anymore and you want to get it out of your house, the government needs to beat the criminal offers in some cases to get these guns. So more of the guns get on the street in studies that they've done in the U.S. And our Department of Justice has cited that. And they've said, you know, it's far more effective when you go after the comprehensive view of where illegal guns are coming from, such as the border, getting better border security in there. Um, And I mean, it's very frustrating for me that we're seeing this happen in the wake of the Nova Scotia shooting when those guns came from the states and no border guard is getting any more money for doing their job than they got before the shooting. The police response time has not gone down by one minute in Peak, And those are things that would actually help in these situations. Instead, I'm out about $15,000 for the rifles. My industry is currently basically having one long heart attack that's been going on for basically a month. Um, and it's it's very frustrating. And and then dealing with these polls where they go, well, everyone wants it. Well, no offense, but who cares if everyone wants it? They don't know what they're talking about in most cases. You know? Thanks for being with us. Well, if you've been following this story from south of the border, you've likely been horrified, not only by the video where you see a man pleading that he couldn't breathe while a police officer holds him down with a knee on his neck. The four Minneapolis officers involved with that have been fired, but many are calling for more action and prosecution in this case. And this comes at the same time there has been a death in Toronto where family members of a young woman are questioning the police involvement in her death after falling from a balcony in Toronto. We wanted to talk more first about the George Floyd story and what is happening there. So we are joined by Timothy T. Williams, who is the author of A Deep Dive, an expert analysis of police procedure, use of force, and wrongful convictions. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. What is your response when you see that video of the police interaction with George Floyd? Well, you know, looking at that video, I've have over going on 47 years working in the criminal justice system and over uh, almost 33 decades of working in active law enforcement. And seeing that video is very, very hard to watch. I've seen a lot during my time, and um, this was very, very, very egregious. It was at the top. Would you agree with the call from the mayor that he would like at least the officer who put his knee to the neck of George Floyd to be prosecuted? Well, they all need to uh, need to go to be be arrested. Uh, they all need to be. You know, the district attorney will make that that call based upon the, the evidence and everything that's 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 involved. There's a investigation that goes on, and the investigation will be reviewed by the DA, and the DA will make a determination whether they will file the charges and what type of charges will be filed against one or all four. Uh, you are a retired uh, senior detective supervisor with the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, how have things changed, or do you think they have changed in the past few, even 10 years? Well, what you're seeing um, has been going on long before I was born, long before my parents were born. And what you're seeing is, uh, you know, technology has advanced, and now things are, are being captured on video and on 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 on, tech, on, on high tech instruments and um, and what you're seeing is not new. This has been going on for decades uh, in the minority communities. So to answer to your question, um, nothing has changed but time. And what you're seeing is um, what you're seeing is pulling back the covers on what's been going on. So nothing new, but what's what's new, I suppose, is the technology and that these incidents are now being recorded. That is correct. Uh, is it, I mean, is it 
a case of, I mean, the fact that we see this, and unfortunately when we see this, it's so often a, a black person that is the person that is either injured or in this case killed. Uh, I mean, is this, is this racism getting worse in the United States or how do we even try to explain that? Well, how you explain it, there's two, there's, and unfortunately, and I, you know, as a professional having worked in law enforcement, there's two type of law enforcement approaches. You have one approach, which is very aggressive for the, for the black and minority communities, and you have another approach for the white communities. And, uh, you know, the, the, the two are polar opposites. Just like in Los Angeles, there is a boulevard called, it was called Rodeo Drive, and um, in the minority community and in Beverly Hills, they have the same name, Rodeo Drive. Well, in the black community, the Rodeo Drive was changed to um, Barack Hussein Obama Boulevard. Well, in Barack Hussein Boulevard, uh, Barack Hussein Obama Boulevard, policing is different than the Beverly Hills Rodeo Drive. I mean, it should be the same. And uh, so that's what you see in, in America. And... Um, the racism is, 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 you know, in my opinion, is very, is very prevalent both in and outside um, the, 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 the departments across the country. I saw someone post a video following up on this, and it was a video that someone had taken of a white man coming out of a residence. Uh, he had a machete, he was waving it, and it showed the police officer in that case talking him down and talking him through it. And a lot of people commented saying if that person had been black, they would be dead. Uh, do, does prosecuting the officers in this case, does that lead to any kind of, of tangible change? Or how, how uh, does that help? Well, uh, talk about that video that you talked about with the machete. I have seen that video. And you are absolutely correct. If that happened in the black community, that person would have been shot and perhaps even killed. Um, the, um, the thing is that, you know, there, there is what you see, in my opinion, is a leadership problem. Um, officers, if the leadership allows it to happen, it's going to happen. And you see, the, you see a, a leadership void throughout America in, in law enforcement. And, um, you know, we have... Chiefs go from one agency to another, and what you're doing, you're recycling bad leadership from one agency, agency to another. Now, uh, you can't uh, paint all the chiefs with the same brushstroke, but um, there's a good portion of them that, that they don't have a, um, a coherent new idea or a, or a visionary focus to law enforcement. And then what you see is what you see. Nothing new is, 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 has, has, has changed. Uh, it just uh, it just sounds so hopeless then if nothing has changed over these years the only thing that has changed is we now have documentation of when this happens how do we make anything change well there is you know and that's going to be into my second book i'm going to talk about the solutions it's easy, it's easy to talk about problems but it's difficult to talk about solutions and there are solutions to this but it has to be it's, it's going to take about anywhere from 10 to 15 years to see a a, a um a, a an affirmative change but you know, you know, you got to have change from the um, background that's being done to get these officers onto the department. Um, you know, you look at the core values of, of individual coming on. If you waiting to get your core values from a, a law enforcement agency, then you're not the person that we that, that's needed in that department. You're supposed to be coming in with those core values. One of the core values is reverence for life. And if they have to be taught to you, then I don't need you on that department, and that, and that person shouldn't be on there. Um, and 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 this as a culture, you know, you find that a lot of background investigations is done by retired law enforcement, and I like to call them gatekeepers. They want the same mentality coming in as they experienced when they were on the department. 
So there will never be change. And there's, there's, there has to be a different approach to bringing folk on. And secondly, is that is the issue of, of supervision at the street level, uh, supervision at the watch commander level, uh, supervision at the command level, and supervision at the management level. I mean, coherent and, and meaningful supervision. And there is no oversight, as, as you can see. If there was oversight, proper oversight, all this stuff would be, you wouldn't see the things that you see out there. All right. Well, we will leave it there. I know it is a much bigger conversation, but we will leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much.